Today's guest on the Free Thinking Podcast is James Parkinson, Senior Program Manager for Regeneration and Economic Development for the Greater London Authority and a great champion for innovation, participation and design quality across London's 600 high streets. We talk about building social resilience at a local level, crowdsourcing, city-making, innovation, and what the real enablers of sustainable regeneration might look like. Hello, James. So James, thank you very much for joining me today. It's very kind of you to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, very good. So, James, firstly, t- tell, tell us your, uh, your, your job, what, what, what you do would be a good beginning. So um, I work in the regeneration team at the Greater London Authority. Um, so championing, um, I suppose, the mayor's role in delivering uh, good growth and uh, design quality in, in built environment investments. We work a lot with local authority partners, um, but also kind of community and, and private sector as well to deliver place-based projects, essentially. Um, I'm one of the area managers. I, I job share with, with somebody else, but we look after projects in the Northwest. Um, but I also um, lead on, on the High Streets for All mission, which is part of the Mayor's Recovery Programme and looks at how we, um, we've done a lot of work over the years on High Streets, to be honest, but this particularly looks at property and how we think about the role of property in balancing economic, social, environmental sustainability and, and ultimately resilience on high streets. Ooh. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think that thing about balance and balance, in pro- I'm really interested in that because I think one thing you and I were talking about before is, you know, before the pandemic, one might have said that the business of property was pretty apathetic to the question of social resilience. But I would imagine since the pandemic, that has changed. Would you agree with that? Is that, that right? So I think um, I'd maybe say that not all of the property world was, was apathetic. I think that's important to clarify. But I do think that you're right in the sense that commercial imperative typically trumps social concerns. Um, and sometimes that's the case in cash-trapped local authorities as well, to be honest, and where we have public assets, where we really haven't maximised social value and and, and maybe that's a, a, a big debate for another day. But I think there's there's good forward thinking innovation going on across both the private and public sector on this. Um, but it's not a given that investment will build social resilience naturally, I don't think, in this country. And I think we've got a long way to go. Um, I mean, to get to your question, I suppose, um, how's the pandemic changed things? I think I think it's revealed to people, and by people I mean everyone across society, not just the professional kind of city development, urban development world, but but everyone, just how fragile our communities and local economies are, um, and just how much we rely on each other in a crisis. So the private sector is not going to go out of its way to save jobs. We saw that with the way the government had to kind of react um, and introduce furlough and do things that they were probably very uncomfortable with politically. Um just to kind of save jobs, essentially, and keep people employed. Um, and a chronically underfunded public sector is not going to be able to react quickly in, in this type of crisis and, and is going to get exposed. So I think it was mutual aid networks and, and locally rooted business with a, with a real genuine stake in the area and the community that they serve that, that people relied on for support. So on my high street, it was it was the corner shop that had, had fresh food when 
um, the just-in-time supply chains were failing. Um, it was local businesses that took an active role in community support, and it was local people who literally got together and knocked on doors to make sure the vulnerable were okay. Um, and I'm sure everyone has has stories like this. Um, and when we look across London's high streets, of which there are there are more than 600, um, we've kind of looked at bits of evidence of how resilient they have been um, during the kind of lockdown periods and the transitions between. We've, we've looked at the data is quite broad, but it's quite reactive. It's mainly focused on spend and footfall, but you get a sense of how people use their their local place. And and the, the, the places that were doing the best or, the, or most resilient and recovered the strongest were smaller high streets further away from the centre of London that serve the everyday needs of, of local people. Um, you know, they tend to be surrounded by communities with a lower net median income than the London average. So people were reliant on these places, the services that they provided. They didn't have choices. And the places that struggled the most were more reliant on international tourism, um, kind of daily um, kind of commuters, um, big, big destination retail. So the central activity zone, places like Stratford, um, you know, they're the ones that that struggled to rebound, to be honest. So I think in terms of you, you can see then that the local places and, and local high streets have the potential to be resilient. And, and the question then becomes, how are we doing the most that we can to um, enhance that, or are we undermining it with with the choices that we make? Oh, well, I mean, it's 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 a fantastic answer, and I think the your point about you know locally rooted, fast moving, agile businesses that are yeah, you know that small high streets serve the wider community. I mean, that makes perfect sense, and particularly the speed of it. I mean, I I think I've really enjoyed people using 28 day event licenses to take on you know areas that might have just been parking before all of a sudden we've got shops restaurants bars local cafes moving out into the high street becoming town squares and market squares like they once were and actually it's been a pilot for kind of that i don't know i suppose it's that tactical urbanism that often we yeah. see happening really well in uh, scandinavian countries and less well here so i'm interested in you know what you might have learned from that because i mean these kind of catalytic projects that f- sounds to me like something you need to um, i don't know help support more is is that something that's you're seeing more because i i know that regeneration so so slow ordinarily isn't it of course of course and and I love it. I love this kind of tactical, experimental approach to urbanism. I think that was kind of where I maybe cut my teeth in terms of thinking when I was a bit younger. We had lots of interesting stuff going on, particularly in places like Berlin, around um, the birth of, of what you might call meanwhile use that I kind of feel got commercialised in this country very quickly and became a bit of a, a kind of branding exercise to an extent but but actually what it what it you know what it can do is really powerful in terms of testing experimenting seeing what works and using that to actually design a longer term solution um and we i think we have done a bit of that i think you're right i think boroughs particular have taken the opportunity um i guess that the the pandemic and the lockdowns um presented to do some of that and i think you can see the debate, you know, in, in public discourse, shall we say, around things like um, low traffic neighbourhoods where, you know, we've kind of shut streets in different parts of the city and promoted 
kind of active travel, walking, cycling, healthy lifestyles. You mentioned it around business, you know, supporting business to kind of take over more of the public realm and be a little bit more European in that kind of alfresco um, model of, of, of deciding how we use our streets and spaces. And I think, you know, I certainly found that quite interesting and some of those things have endured. I think they, they've certainly started lots of debates locally. There's certainly you know, opposition as well to some of this stuff and challenges that come with it. But if we hadn't tried and shown people what was possible, then I think you always struggle to make arguments on paper and it becomes political very quickly and it's difficult to actually make the jump into into action and, and reality. And this gave, a, you know, local authorities in particular a chance to do some of the action in the way that we we have done with Meanwhile and, and being able to actually, you know, say, oh, OK, does this work? Shall we do more of it or shall we knock it on the head? Yeah, it's really interesting that point about action, isn't it? That, you know, I mean, often uh, regional authorities, well, like any big organisation, get lost in that sort of uh, where procrastination meets strategy, like strategination, where they're just like everybody's making glorious PDFs. They've got you know, they've got mission statements coming out of their ears. They've got one on mobility, one on, you know, access, one on transport, one on, blah, blah, you know, social value, whatever it might be. But actually bringing it together as a pilot where they can lead with action, immediately test, evaluate and learn. That strikes me as something that, you know, doesn't happen nearly enough. I mean, if we think of sort of a kind of, you know, tech companies, I mean, you know, we, we do a lot of work with big brands and I think what I love about what they do is they think about the world in a sort of beta permanent way where they're constantly testing and evaluating and I know I mean one of your lovely catalytic projects was um, crowdfund London you know a kickstarter for cities and I mean that strikes me as as very much learned from that world tell me how that began and whether that is a good one to talk about now is that a good example Absolutely. I mean, I, I could talk about this for days. So so do stop me or, or push me in the right direction if required. But I think where to start with this, I think, you know, going back to what you were saying before about, um, I guess, kind of regeneration being a kind of long process. And, you know, that sometimes um, that being quite difficult, I suppose, to sell almost to communities where, you know, we're, we're going to start this now, we're going to involve you a little bit. Um, and, you know, with any luck, and, and the right kind of funding package, we might have it done in 10 years and hopefully it will benefit you. You know, I don't think that kind of cuts through with a lot of people and there's always been a challenge. And I do think you need, you know, I absolutely do believe in in kind of strategic approach and, and partnership working and kind of place-based approach to kind of long-term change. But I think you do need to have um, a difference of scale sometimes and you have to be able to embrace small scale projects, tactical projects, and other opinions and you have to be able to give up some control sometimes as well and I think I'm going to hopefully talk about this quite a lot over the next 20 minutes or so but I think control is key so when we started what became Crowdfund London we had a few kind of propositions in mind shall we say that we wanted to test the first I suppose was you know we can spend a couple of million pounds on a regeneration project and get lots of really good designers involved you know um uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a success. It takes a lot of time and effort to actually bring the community into that project, to do anything that might resemble co-design, to keep them involved through the duration, to deliver something 
on time on budget and then have the impact that 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 was desired and actually you know do something that kind of um turns the dial on on a big issue like inequality there might be projects that we might spend a couple of million pounds on they might fail so what if we could do lots of small scale projects that we didn't really decide what they were um but they allowed people a route into kind of getting involved in shaping their neighborhood and proposing ideas and and a lot of this came from this idea that maybe people you know could and should propose ideas and you know there's a lot of incredible energy and innovation in local communities just struggling to be born for want of a better phrase um and how do you do that and actually you know the systems that we have to kind of surface some of those you know apply for a grant from a from a funder through a process that's quite mechanical um you know they tend to choose the same people again and again and again there's almost an industry around applying for grants and we were starting to look at some of this these kind of digital tech platforms and the impact that they might have on 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 the way that we live and the way that we um you know express our our freedom in the west should we say and we we've, we've seen some really interesting ones over the years and you know the airbnb and uber that are probably the big ones that spring to mind you know they they they're essentially saying that you can um you know you can have kind of agency and you can use your power in a slightly different way and we'll facilitate that and we won't ask too many questions because um you know at the end of the day this will be creative and interesting i think to an extent i i agree with that but to an extent it's also a big concern and i picked up airbnb and uber in particular because we've all seen over over the subsequent years just how much of an impact they can have on the way cities function you know in places like berlin they're quite against airbnb i think because of the impact it had on you know the the quite um closed kind of rental market that they have and the way that they try to keep things affordable we've had lots of debates around the world about uber working conditions um and and such like for instance and i think these you know i'm not sure that these platforms take responsibility and we were looking at the kind of rise of um kickstarter you said but you know crowdfunding and the role that this might play in helping to support initiatives and the fact that we this was being coupled with you know austerity and the lack of funding elsewhere you could see it becoming quite popular and you could see it moving into a city making space you know and i think it was all all good and well to kind of raise funding for a, a book or or something and and you know the people who want the book put the money in and they get the book but when it comes to um public space or public building you know somebody's idea um getting cash um with with no kind of check or balance there is not might not necessarily be the right thing to do in the place and it, there might be an opportunity cost around what you might do um with that space in it in an, if another voice had been loud or another pocket deeper so we wanted to kind of take what might be an interesting concept crowdsourcing and crowdfunding and and bringing people into the process but try and design something that um could also have some of those checks and balances and and show the way i suppose if other local authorities wanted to do this type of activity at scale um and we lent a lot on a piece of work um i was working with with Finn Williams at the time and we lent a lot on a piece of work by Dan Hill and and Brian Boyer called called Brickstarter and essentially it was a hypothetical digital platform to do just this and and essentially what we did with Craft for London was try and build that platform um we you we we were working with Spacehive one of the the first civic crowdfunding platforms 
Um, we designed a process ultimately that that allowed, you know, mayoral funding to kind of be channeled into these locally led campaigns. Um, and we supported and we built a support program around it in, in, to help people understand how to, you know, budget for a project, how to think about difficult things like planning issues or design issues. But largely we kind of stood off and watched to see what happened. Um, and essentially, um, lots of interesting things did happen. We ended up putting about five million pounds into this over a number of years and 130 odd projects came forward um, to, and received funding much more than that actually yeah. came forward and and just to give you a bit of a sense of some of the things we kind of yeah. found out give us a highlight well, yeah which, which ones led the way because that's that's a huge number of projects there's, there's a lot that kind of led the way and they were all doing some really interesting stuff i mean and and by and large most of them succeeded in some way to be honest um on some level it wasn't there wasn't a lot of, of kind of failure here. There was certainly a big role for the GLA in making sure that campaigns were successful. And it's probably not the forum here, but I could I could go on for hours about how we kind of structured the the model of how we added funding to a campaign to try and make it successful. But essentially the premise was the community come in first. And you know, the, the community you know proposed the idea and rally round to back it. And that was important for not only to for the for the those proposing the project to kind of go out and be forced to seek um you know input from others, but it was also a real t- opportunity for for shaping the project with other with other members of the community, for the community to offer other things alongside cash, and they did more often than not. And that might have been kind of skills or capacity, resource to get things done. It might have been legal support. It might have been volunteering. Um, it was all manner of things. It might have just been bits of wood. Um, but they really did kind of, you know, see that as an opportunity to get involved. And and you don't have to put in much to feel involved in a project. You know, a couple of quid, um, you, you have a skin in the game then. And it's your it's your initiative after that. And that was a real a real kind of thing that resonated. Then we might come in and pump in, you know, 20 grand. And and that was the catalyst for for other kind of slightly more institutional, shall we say, investors to maybe come in, which might be local business. It might be the council in some cases where we'd kind of de-risked and legitimised this idea and said, look, you know, this this can work and we're behind it. Um, and suddenly you get this kind of support locally from those that that might not be taking the risk initially but can really help afterwards. And that's when you ended up with quite an interesting mix of funding in the pot and an interesting mix of expertise. So it wasn't just reliant on the community having the skills or or the GLA and our officers being able to put in the time. It was it was actually a real collective endeavour to solve problems and find solutions to stuff. And by the time we kind of got to the end of this, you know, a lot of the a lot of the projects at the start were saying, look, you know, it's much easier just to apply for a grant. I don't know what I've got myself into here. We're all, you know, we're all at, at, at using up all our weekends and getting stressed. And and we were kind of saying, you know, look, just take a step back. And, and eventually when they kind of finished the project, the, the mood had really shifted and they were like, oh, oh, my word, we've learned an incredible amount here. We can take this and we can use it in our professional lives and our personal lives. We can start another project. You know, we've got skills now that we didn't have before we've really kind of come together and met our neighbours. Um, we feel like we've made a, a real difference and actually might not might not change that type of process if I could go back and, and you know, talk to my previous self. Um, you know, just to give you a few stats to end on, because I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but like, 
you know, 77% of those that, that got involved with this program felt genuine and genuinely empowered. Um, you know, they had control, they were delivering stuff, they were, they were getting cash. Um, 72% of projects said the, that the endeavor increased community cohesion. 86% said that, you know, the, the process significantly improved their skills, um, or, or the skills of those that were around them in the, in the organization. You know, 65% fund, you know, said they were funding things that we couldn't get cash to fund from anyone else. Um, and 73% of project leaders um, planned to start another project in the future. So we were starting to get beyond the usual suspects of public funding and do some interesting things and ask some interesting questions here. Wow. I think that thing about going beyond the project, I mean, it's interesting that I, I was thinking we were going to talk about sort of catalytic projects and they were going to be, yeah, sort of very yeah built environment points. But what you're talking about in terms of sustaining community participation, changing, I mean, it's culture change, isn't it? Where we're, you know, those, as, as people's skills change, as they have a different relationship with one another, you're beginning to think about the whole, I suppose, governance structure of that local community. But, but you're there. I mean, that's hard to know when to let go too, I imagine, as a local authority, or as a regional authority, because you know, there's so much you can do and so much advice that could be given. And I suppose maybe this dovetails a bit with what you're doing now in terms of the property exchange, which by nature is this whole ecosystem that we've been touching on, which is investors, developers, landlords, occupiers, tenants, community activists, community, all better working together. I mean, do you find that the projects, the catalytic projects you spoke of before, is that the biggest learning from that, that that actually designing uh, yeah, organisations and helping with culture is the big thing that you take out rather than the physical project? Is, is that the bit that you find most heartening? I think for me personally, yes. I think this kind of, you know, system change and culture change is important. Um, and, and I suppose that's probably why I've kind of spoken about it. I think, I think that there's a lot of interesting learning on the design side too. Um, and the projects were really, you know, where there was a real scale of, of kind of ambition around some of these. You know, we had self-build community centres, but we also had, you know, some quite, quite um, clever, but, but you know, primitive, shall we say, um, interventions that weren't particularly about design. Um, but I think it's it's something that we can learn from in in design um, about how you kind of bring people into a project in a meaningful way and give up some of that control and be able to kind of accept some sort of risk. That doesn't mean that, you know, a long-term solution that's beautifully designed, you know, could, you know, might be better. But I think it asks an interesting question around ownership as well. You know, if you if you had something that was quite informal, but the community were really, you know, really powerfully owned it and used it, and you said, well, actually, this is, you know, we could design this better, we're going to take it away and we're going to redo it you know, would would they still own that? Um, and that would be my kind of question about about the interplay between, you know, something like uh, a discipline like architecture and and a, and a cultural practice of, um, you know, kind of community co-design. And I think we've we've come a long way in that in that world in, in 20 years, but it's still a really fertile ground, I think, for for thinking. I mean, you you were talking a little bit about um you know what kind of learning and and sustaining some of this stuff and 
you know, whether or not, um, you know, the, these things kind of did endure. And I, and I think there is, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge we had on that programme was that a lot of energy kind of came together um, and and there wasn't always the kind of natural long term um, either governance or project where that that kind of energy could endure and it dissipated. And I think then you start to get back into this, you know, kind of oh, we, we got so far, but we but we, we couldn't um, continue. And I think what we kind of did after that and, and this kind of was a, a bit of a in between then and and something like the property exchange now we start to think about how you might um, try and drive some of that longer term, um, shall we say, um, sustainability of an initiative or an organisation. Um, and I think that's when kind of property does become quite important. So it was quite easy to do things in a temporary fashion, um, but it's much more difficult to do things over time, um, especially if they're if they're risky things. And therefore, access to property and community ownership of property or community management of assets, to me, becomes, um, you know, part of the solution here and the thing that we kind of need to work towards. And and we did a lot of interesting work with with Nesta and with organisations like Power to Change, who've spent a lot of time thinking about how, you know, the role that community business can play in in local economic development and regeneration. And by community business, I kind of mean locally rooted um, and and accountable to the local community um, organisations that still trade for for profit, but that profit might be, you know, for the you know put into the local benefit. I suppose it's like a social enterprise, but it's but it's locally rooted and locally um, kind of accountable, and and it's trying to deliver that kind of that impact. And we did a bit of work to to try and set up or experiment with what it takes to kind of set up a community business, how you might transition a grassroots organisation into one of those. And then what you might do as a community business, you know, that might be your kind of sustainable governance model, but you you, you still might need access to the asset. And how do you get access to the asset? And, and we were looking at things, you know, moving on from crowdfunding, we were looking at things like community shares and the role that they might play. Um, organisations like Power to Change are looking a little bit more around, um, you know, kind of the policy that might underpin a community right to buy that's a bit more effective in this country. And how do we get local organisations um, in pole position to buy assets from, you know, the kind of private sector market when they become available? And how do you find have bridging loans or bridging funding to help them in, in the short term when they won't, you know, have, have kind of ready access to capital? And I think a really good kind of case study to maybe look at around this is is actually in Plymouth um an organization called Nudge Community Builders which was set up in 2017 by a group of local people that became a community benefit society with 700 local members and a board of local residents um they kind of came together to respond to this issue of 25% vacancy on the high street and kind of inertia in the typical top down you know council led regeneration approach um, and, you know, in four years, they bought two buildings and leased another two and, and have kind of really developed a strong relationship with the council. Actually, they've been able to do lots of kind of business support and community support activity on a meanwhile basis in those units. Um, but the rationale was focused on community ownership of the assets 
to secure this long-term benefit to the community so that economic impact stays local and wealth isn't extracted or doesn't leak out but it's it's kind of you know kept locally and, and spent locally and that and the key to that that being a success was this kind of funding package up front which was a bit of council cash and and some some grant grant funding and then a community share offer essentially was raised to pay off those loans um but that that initial capital i believe kind of gave the community the bargaining power um you know at the table when the opportunities came up on on property um and and were at the, you know they were able to kind of move quickly and and not have to try and spend months and months and months putting the funding together and then lose the asset so there's lots to kind of unpack around this stuff but i think it's about control um at the heart of it it's interesting this point about control because i think also you know, as a regional authority one would imagine that you are you know, connecting with your boroughs and then in turn they connect with landlords or community. But in so many of these, you know, these examples, you're working across the board. You know, there are individuals here, small businesses that you're helping to catalyze and then grow from there. I think what I love about it is it speaks of a a new methodology in, in some ways, which, you know, you know, the thing you and I have talked about before around people and program place and property all these things beginning with p that often it was property first and then all of those other elements are things that happen after the fact they're often considered as an overlay whereas what you're talking about is that you know that 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 golden thread throughout it of people and the activities that will drive them to be attracted and involved in a place is fundamental to everything you're talking about and then in that sense you're talking you're creating something that will more likely endure because it is run by those people for them and i i find that i mean yeah it's thrilling i mean so tell me a bit about this i mentioned the property exchange earlier which i i've i know a little bit about because i've been involved in it but i think that where so much of what we talked about around methodology and essentially creating a platform so that you can celebrate good projects but also bring advice to those that need it, this strikes me as many of the gaps that you've felt over the last few years are going to be helped out by the property exchange. But tell us what, what on earth is that, and uh, yeah, what might yeah what it might grow to become, and maybe how might we even take part in this thing? Absolutely, yes. Um, so, so essentially, this this is part of the the mayor's recovery program and the high streets for all mission I touched on at the start, and 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 that mission is to to find new and creative ways for property to support high street resilience, essentially, and and that m- not just kind of economic, but but social and environmental resilience too, um, and and the property exchange itself was is very much kind of born out of a partnership between eight kind of sector gatekeepers, shall we say, that represent the property sector, but also business and tenant interests. And and this kind of, you know, issue that we've had time and time again of those worlds having kind of simple and, and pragmatic conversations being quite difficult to orchestrate. You know, there's quite a lot of process involved and quite a lot of antagonism on, on both sides sometimes. And But how can we create something where we try and break down a few barriers and try and surface and share innovation and and say look you know we know good stuff is going on out there so how do we learn from it how do we mainstream things that do work um not focus too much on the challenges but think a little bit about how we focus on what's working well and and adapt that to different situations so 
essentially it's part digital platform. There's a website um, and it's part network that we want to build. And it's it, the aim is to be open and accessible and a, and a place for people to kind of bring contributions, conversations um, that try and share these ideas. And we want anyone to feel like they can come participate and that this is something that they can own and 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 you know contribute content to. We're not going to be curating all of this content and you know we're not going to be suggesting that we've got all of the right answers either. Um, but if we can help bring you know those that own and manage property together with those that have good ideas and find it difficult to get them off the ground, then that could be a, an interesting way that we as you know, regional authority or the founding partners actually help to broker some of these tough conversations. So we want to kind of platform diverse voices and get away from the usual suspects and find a way of having conversations that you wouldn't normally see in a kind of property sector um, conference or, or discussion forum. Um, but we do want to kind of bring that new audience to the established audience and try and shake things up. Um, there's a number of ways in which people can get involved. You know, the, the website is um, propertyxchange.london um, and it tells you how you can get involved. But there's essentially six ways to kind of propose something. Um, the website is live and the, the programme that we want to curate will last for about a year now. Um, but the first is around hosting or recording a conversation, um, perhaps just like this, a podcast that maybe gets at a few issues and challenges a few things and could be done quite simply. Um, but maybe, you know, something that others would value or you think that, you know, is, is not discussed enough. Um, another would be perhaps suggesting a question that you don't know the answer to, but we could help find somebody who does and either set that conversation up or get them to, to explain, you know, why some things are so tough. And that might be about an, maybe an agent um, talking about, you know, what, what does and doesn't fly when it comes to, to leasing property in certain places. Um, we It might be about hosting an event, a forum, as we're calling them, which is a diverse group of people invited to discuss an issue. We don't know what the answer is, but we know what the question is. Um, and let's see what happens there and see if connections can be made. It might be about writing a case study. What's a good, good example or in practice of something working well that could be done again and again and again, but isn't? And how can we help share that? Um, it could be um, just something you love about the local high street um, that we could understand better, to be honest. You know, what are the common threads between the things that people value the most? If there's something that's working really well, you don't necessarily know why on your high street. Tell us about it. We'll go look at it and see and see why it might be working. So, you know, it, it, there's something for everyone here in terms of, of how they could contribute. And we want it to be quite dynamic. We, we don't want it to be, you know, real long format pieces, but like kind of pithy, um, you know, conversations that start to get to the nub of some of the issues that stop good things happening when when we know that that everybody on both sides is is really trying to make, you know, high streets better. It's not that every, you know, property owner or landlord is trying to be, uh, you know, an obstruction here. Um, how can we find the people that want to do good things and match them maybe with with good ideas and try and, and try and take more risks maybe? Yeah. Oh, I I, I love it. I, I I think so much of what the the you know the opportunity there about making this you know richer conversation 
that can happen across the process with all different stakeholders. I think it's brilliant. And also the first, the things I've seen so far, you know, you're, you're also helping to create a common language here because, you know, this is a business that's full of jargon, full of complication. You know, it's kind of scary. So people can only really have any control, any sway if they have some, you know, some common language here and common tools. And I, that, that strikes me as a, a key, key bit of what you're putting forward here. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's a bit of an experiment as well. We don't know how this is going to go and we're not going to be, you know, too precious about the direction it takes. So, um, you know, getting involved now is a good way of, of shaping what this becomes, I think. Yeah. Well, I've, well, James, I mean, it's been a delight to speak to you. And I think particularly I, I, I note as I look through my copious notes here written as if a serial killer has been involved. It, it, it looks like I, I'm writing things about control and power and authority and direction and managing. And I think, you know, everything you're trying to do here is is to broaden that debate so that we all have a hand in this opportunity of control and the risks and rewards that go with it. And I think that's really, really stimulating seeing that as this debate. You know, you, one of the questions last week, I remember, was around the, the David and Goliath of the high streets. And I think what you're doing here is sort of, not not just evening the playing field, but actually creating far more reasons for dialogue, for better projects at many, many different scales. And I think that feels, you know, really exciting. So thank you. Really wonderful. And is there, you know, one, if you were to give us one last tip in terms of what we, if, if we are imagining a project on the high street that we're wanting to um, make happen and we're maybe a, a community group how I guess we go straight to the property exchange is that where we begin <laughs> yeah that's a t- I mean it's a tough question so so it's a good one but yeah you know I think I think that would be a good port of call you know why not um and maybe we can try and answer that through the property exchange and get you know various people together to have that kind of conversation what you know what would it take if you just had an idea who do you need around the table how do you get access to these people and how do you table that idea in such a way that you know, it might it might get off the ground. I think that would be an interesting question to have because I don't think there's there's a perfect answer to that. I think there's lots of routes in, you know, and it might be through a funding program, it might be through a connection to the local authority, it might be by just doing it and proving it um yourself. But um it's it's never, you know, a kind of one size fits all with getting that kind of stuff off the ground in my experience. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's a real, everything about this is about enabling, isn't it? It's an opportunity mindset. And I really see that, you know, all those people involved. Yeah, that's what they're interested in. So well, I, I wish you well with that. I mean, James, it's a delight to speak to you about this. We've covered such huge distances. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to discuss it. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast today. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.